Well, hi everybody, it's Toby Miller here um, for the Cultural Studies Podcast. I'm in Austin, Texas at the Dog and Duck Pub, and I'm with my friend Karen Gwyn Wilkins. Karen, how are you? Great. And I have in my warmish little hand, or maybe, I don't know, how small is that hand? Put it next to yours. Oh, it's dead, it's <laughs> left on left. It's not tiny, my hand by contrast with yours. I have in my warmish, not-so-little hand, Karen's latest book, which is called Questioning Numbers, How to Read and Critique Research. And it has a fabulous cover. So I wanted you to start up by telling us about the cover. Would you do that? What's going on in this cover? And thanks for the wine. Uh, sure. Which I think I paid for. But yes, you did. Yes, you did. So. Actually, the cover is the one thing that I wasn't particularly pleased with because of the <laughs> because of the colors. Um, there are lots of red staircases going up and down. Yep. Um, the staircase is a nice metaphor. The red is a bit odd. Um, I'll say this too about the title. I had wanted to call this something else. I had wanted to call this the politics of numbers. I think I think I remember that. I and think it was I remember originally, a with you a while ago. Yes, it was originally yeah. supposed to be a book called The Politics of Numbers. Um, and in the end, the uh, the powers that be at this uh, at Oxford University Press decided yeah. to change the name so people wouldn't be so afraid of the book. But the <laughs> the underlying idea of the book is that a number is a symbolic code that we create for political reasons and that there's a process that is engaged by people who do research and we need to know how people do that, the, the decisions that they make, so we can better critique those numbers and use the numbers as argument. I love it. Now, it looks, having flicked through quickly at the subheadings, as though this is both a polemic in that sense, I mean, making a point epistemologically, politically, but it's also user-friendly in the sense of this is something that students or people working for a non-government organization or in public policy might actually utilize as a means of learning how to do numbers as well as question them. Is that right? Well, that's what I'm hoping. The, um, the first chapter is much more philosophical. It's about the epistemology of how we create numbers. And I originally wrote that in the early 90s after hearing Richard Rorty speak. Uh -huh. I love the philosophy of language. It's something that matters a great deal to my own thinking. But when people say that we create words as communication, but numbers we should dismiss, that's when I take issue. And I heard him say that. So I wrote a paper, um, which is that first chapter is based on, and presented it actually in Sydney at ICA in 94. International Communication Association. And this is the only time I've ever presented a paper at an academic conference at which somebody stood up and yelled and screamed and said, because I was speaking about the basic point, which is that a number is something that we create. And we all have a shared understanding of what that number is. And there is a politics and there are ways of understanding how we create numbers to be larger or smaller. And this person stood up and said, with you, there is no zero. Fantastic which I thought was fascinating. Enough. And he had a very good point. Is there a universal notion of zero? 
because I was making the point that number three means nothing unless we understand what that three is in reference to, and is it three between two and four, or three between one and a hundred? So that got me inspired. I teach research methods, and I am very unhappy with most of the methods textbooks, because they either dismiss numbers as trivial, or they believe in numbers as something to worship. And so I didn't like any of the textbooks. So the rest of the book is written in a way that's meant to help people who are trying to read research in newspapers, basically. Just understand, or reports, so they can have the questions that they would need in order to read the research and be critical of it. So for something as simple as, um, you know, is television violent? First, how do you define it? If you define it in a very broad way, the count will be much higher. Just something as basic as that. One of the most interesting political issues that comes up in here is the census. How people want to be counted, and if people want to be counted, and what categories do we decide matter? So, for example, in the United States, things like race and religion are hot ticket items. And there's a history to which groups get counted when and how. Um, whereas in the French census, there is a movement to have never have a religious affiliation or ethnicity counted based on World War II experiences. One of my favorite examples is the Palestinian census. Uh -huh. In 1998, the Palestinians decided for the first time to count themselves, not have the British, not have the Jordanians, not have the Israelis count them. But they wanted to count themselves and it was important for two reasons. One, for planning, strategic planning, so they could make arguments for foreign aid. And more importantly, it was an assertion of sovereignty. The ability to control their own count meant that they were, in their eyes, and projecting themselves as a nation. Absolutely. Well, one of the things that I know is interesting about struggles with the census here in the United States often is that lots and lots of conservatives, particularly in politics, hate the census and particularly hate valid statistical methods because they want to make sure that unless you're physically counted as an entity then you should not be part of it because that's part of their attempt to destroy the democratic majority that is the real nature of the US population but their cohort with whom they're in cahoots in business really want proper statistically valid census data because that's how you make decisions about where you place businesses, about how you advertise, how you market, and what you think about in terms of occupational mobility. So there's a very interesting class politics fracture within the United States over the, this question of numbers and the census, isn't there? Absolutely. Yeah. And the Democrats want something in addition to the full count census, which is sampling, because cities and homeless and lots of vulnerable communities are undercounted. And that is a statistical way of approximating that helps you get at that question. Yeah. But there's a problem with that. What's also interesting, too, though, is the absolute importance that the information be private, that it not be related to taxing right. or any other government entity. Legality of one's yeah. life or one's immigration status or anything like that. And yeah. um, I don't know as much about this, but I'm interested in learning more about India where they're coming up with identity cards that are not private. The argument for the identity card is for accounting for administration purposes. Right. But if the identity card is connected to other sorts of things, it can be... We're concerned about issues of privacy. 
that. Yeah, for sure, for sure, absolutely. No, I mean, I think, and this is why often statisticians general and their kind are quite liberal regardless of their politics because they actually want to get at the real state of affairs rather I mean even though it's approximated through these sampling methods rather than worrying about who should or should not be there they're much more concerned about who is there this is why I have a touching faith in demography mm -hmm. <laughs> when it's it, done well when it's done well it's comparatively non-discriminatory uh, by, com by comparison with a lot of uh, politically driven categories of knowledge that dominate US public life. You know, I'd much rather have the census know me than any corporation in this country or any other part of the government. But anyway, enough of that. I'm sure you think that that is a rather touching faith. What's wrong with demography? It depends on how it's used. And? Okay. <laughs> well, when you're talking about that, what I can't help thinking about is the interviews I did with the Palestinians who designed and ran their census and all of the other things that went along with the demography. It's not just the yes. counting, but it's coming up with street signs. It's labeling residences in a way that may not have been labeled before. And their experience was that they didn't have house numbers everywhere, but they created them to enable the census takers to do the work. But it it imposes an entire structure on people's daily life. Sure, sure. Well, if you take a place like Costa Rica, they don't have house numbers. And the way that the mail arrives is via letters or whatever packages being addressed in terms of, you go 100 meters in this direction, then you turn left at the third light, and it's the fourth house on the right. Which is hard in terms of the census. That's how all taxi drivers are given directions. That's how the buses operate, I mean, the entire system. Mind you, this is a country that also doesn't have a military, so they don't do things the way we do them here, for example. But yes, I mean, the, the, the census is a crucial part of statehood, isn't it? And the ability to make your own choices, do your own counting, and decide what happens as a consequence of that. But it can impose its own logic of the type that you're describing. And to me, I think what really matters is who has control over the production of the numbers. Sure. Who's able to control that? Yeah. It really does matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, what about at the other extreme of things? You mentioned that the two kinds of textbooks that you duel with in your teaching of research methods are those that basically want to give head to numbers. All forms of allegedly quantitative, allegedly scientific research are wonderful, and I love making feel so good inside. As opposed to qualtoids who hate all quantoids and think that anything with a decimal point or a percentage sign is perforce crude and stupid. Mm -hmm. Is that roughly what you're yeah, describing? Basically. Put in the crudest imaginable language, of course. Why are qualtoids so negative about quantoids? I've actually given that a lot of thought because now and then in my courses I'll have someone who enters the course saying, I hate numbers, please don't make me learn this. And I think sometimes it's a fear based on earlier experiences with math, mm -hmm. where students are taught there's only one right way, and if you don't get it right away, then you are somehow wrong. Or and you're, you're an idiot. And you're, you're an idiot, stupid. yeah. Rather than seeing that there are lots of creative ways for producing numbers, in the same way there's a creativity to producing a poem. 
it calls for creativity. There is no one right way. So people are afraid of it. Also, I think, because in this society, we put way too much faith in the number. Well, in the United States, you think about discussions about the media, which, are, which is a topic that both Karen and I are interested in. And really, other than discussions about what should and should not be regulated, you can't enter public discourse unless you have a study that counts something, as far as I can tell, which I've not encountered anywhere else in the world. It's a bit odd, but yes, there's a, a faith in technology and numbers yeah. as science, and that's part of the rationality, the modernity that people think is going to be there. And related to that, I think we put way too much faith in the idea that Facebook is going to change the world. <laughs> Way too much faith in that. So I've been also doing a little bit of work on how the US media have been presenting Facebook in terms of the Egyptian protests and the politics there. In the same way, I think we put way too much emphasis on the numbers. We put too much emphasis on technology as if it has some of its own particular power. Magic rather, transcendence. Exactly. Rather than looking at the history of labor unions, the history of young people who are frustrated and unemployed. The history of class politics. Absolutely. As distracted by religion and, so, and, and ethnic inequality. And so that's our take. The, the way we understand what happened in Egypt is very limited in that way as well. Right, right. We impose the Hollywood narrative on this as if Getting yeah. rid of Mubarak was the only thing that had to happen. We slayed the villain, and now everybody's supposed to live happily ever after, but that's not the case. This is the odd thing, isn't it? On the one hand, there is this drive towards representativity via numbers. On the other, there's this faith, as you say, in the Hollywood story where there's the bad person. Exactly. And once you've identified evil and you root it out, everything's fine. It's, it's the Hitlerian Napoleonic narrative where history is understood as unfurling either through the logic of technology and numbers. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Wonderful. Or via the monstrosity or the power, depending on your perspective, of a single individual, probably male. Right. Um, so, okay. Getting back to my solitary qualtoy, the tragic qualtoy, ah, the yes. person who's saying to you, hey, numbers. I get that they've been oppressed with mathematical monism and I, I understand mm -hmm. that they also have been told there's one way of doing things but there's something else sometimes isn't there in addition to fear that they've got that's concerning them and that's part of what feeds into the whole faultoid quantoid bifurcation in the United States in communications in sociology uh, to a certain extent within clear metrics in history to a certain extent within physical anthropology versus other kinds of anthropology, the status of science, the difference between continental philosophy and analytic philosophy, philosophy of mind. Yeah. Now, I don't know how widespread this is globally, but I do feel that we tend to fall into false dichotomies quite often in U.S. scholarship. So the dichotomy of quantitative versus qualitative, mm. it's to me, it's completely false. Mm -hmm. In the mm -hmm. same way, I would say that looking at reality as completely objective or subjective is. You can produce numbers and understand them as intersubjective codes in the same way you can look at the production of a qualitative narrative as evidence. So it's the process and how you understand what you're doing that matters, not whether you're producing a number or an ethnographic text. Uh -huh. But that kind of division 
is so entrenched that I think it limits us because if there's a problem and we want to think critically how to solve it, we need to think very openly about a variety of ways of gaining evidence, not just one way. Mixed methods. Yes. So what about the quantoid? Is the quantoid threatened by questioning numbers, your book, because this takes the holy grail and displaces it in some ways or problematizes it? Some are and some aren't. I think that the people who are truly thoughtful and understand producing research that involves a lot of numbers know how many decisions get made and how many different ways those numbers could have been produced. There is a creativity to the process and people who really understand it get that. They may not all want to admit it and there's a politics to admitting it. A lot of institutions get funding based on the numbers they produce, so they want them to be legitimate because they want their funding to be recycled. To continue. When I've been a journal editor, every now and then I've sent a manuscript that was based on numbers research to somebody who was an expert in the field that was being discussed. I'm thinking of an instance that was to do with gender and sport. And the person's written back and said, I'm a critical scholar, I can't review this. Or, I've sent a paper that was about, say, the same topic to somebody who does statistical manipulation on gender and sport, sent them a paper that's ethnographic and they've said, I can't do this, I'm a social scientist. I have a very difficult time with that kind of response because to me to do good critical research means that you have to be open to a variety of ways of addressing and gathering evidence to a problem that matters. So the first thing is that the research question should matter and then the second thing is that when we're all trying to find ways of understanding things in the world and gathering evidence, there's a way of doing so in a, in a process that makes it transparent and makes us accountable to what we're doing. And those are the things that matter, whether we're producing numbers or different kinds of texts. So to me, critical scholarship needs to encompass both. I remember Justin Lewis's book on public opinion, came out about 10 years ago, about public opinion in the United States, making a point, I think he makes the point somewhere there, that numbers are about taking words and finding lots of things that are similar under the category of a word, and then statisticalizing them, and then turning them back into words in order to have an effect. Absolutely. This is a great achievement. You know, it's a really remarkable achievement, but it shows that there are key qualitative components all along the line, which people who cut themselves out by saying, I don't don't want to know what a chi-square is, or I don't want to know what regression analysis is, are losing out on. But also people who fail to talk about the importance of nominating Mm -hmm. are also misconstruing, misunderstanding. I don't care so much that people understand the math of it, I care that they understand the logic of it. Mm -hmm. So, thinking in media terms, what does this Mm -hmm. mean? When people want to understand an opinion poll or a rating or Mm -hmm. a share and how reliable that is, how would you go about teaching them how to question that or how to understand it. Well, the first issue that I think is most important is who is being asked the question. Mm -hmm. 
we have numbers thrown around in news all the time about public opinion and this and that. And it may be based on 10 people in one city, friends of a particular person, or it may be a so-called random sample. If it's a random sample, is it only of the people who happen to be answering the phone? which is not that many. And it's not going to be a cell phone probably, it's going no. to be a landline. Exactly. So one issue is just basically who is being asked the question and then what are they being asked specifically. After that, if you look at what people are being asked, what are the categories that they're given? Do they get to answer in their own terms or are they given a set of choices? The set of choices I find really interesting because there's a politics to that. What gets listed and how things get listed. And there are some categories where there's no real order. So for example, religious affiliation, ethnicity. It's not that one order is there and it makes sense, but one of the things that I've looked at is that the order tends to be the group in power first and then the others. So whatever ethnicity is majority where it is, that group gets listed first. Christian gets listed first in U.S. surveys. Uh, married gets listed first. Caucasian gets listed first. When people ask um, political parties if there's a Republican as a president, Republican gets listed before Democrat. If a Democrat is president, Democrat gets listed before Republican. Fabulous. And it's interesting because there's a politics to that order. There's no sense to it. It's not alphabetical. And male is listed before female. Wow. Now, that, that's in there. That sounds cool. Now one thing I wanted to ask you about. Hello beautiful, very cute dog here. That's a dog and duck pup. <laughs> that's what we came, we like to name the pup. Absolutely, suitable for the little pooch. They felt that their little dog needed an outing, they told me when you were getting the drinks, Karen. We need a duck? An outing. Little person there, the four-legged well, one. The duck. Yeah. Yeah, now the duck for the dog to have to chase. So what about when we're not talking about government research or even corporate okay but scholarly research yes again as an editor but also as a reader I've had to try to contend with the squillion articles as a view that say 150 million students at a large university in the Midwest were asked to do da -da 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 -da. right 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 and I often say to students who take psychology or communications courses were you given the chance to say I don't want to do this and it doesn't interest me and I want to be paid and if this is part of your next application for a job or for a motion or a merit or an article I'd like a piece of the action because I'm one of the authors. Similarly if you're telephoned by somebody asking for your opinion on something ask them whom they work for and if you could have some of the money please since you're giving them your intellectual property. What gives with all these sadistic communications and psychology professors who want to extract value from people who are already paying tuition. Not that I'm showing my hand here or anything. <laughs> well, there are issues of exploitation that I think are really important and students are supposed to be given an opportunity to say no. And there are ethical guidelines that most universities have where there should be no the professor should not know whether or not a student is taking a survey. The professor should leave the room and not know. And so there's, the student should have no repercussions whatsoever. Right, why is it part of a class? 
It shouldn't be anything to do. No. I'm sorry. With I agree with you. I agree with you. I'm absolutely appalled by this, I have to say. Anyway, all right, I'll get off my hobby horse now. Well, I think that you're right that there's a... There is exploitation to the process. Thanks. Absolutely. There... I wish as fields of research we were not asking faculty to keep their jobs by doing research that would rely on that kind of sampling. There's a, especially in more difficult economic times, there's more pressure on faculty to do certain kinds of research, certain kinds of funded research in order to get tenure. And it makes it harder for people who would not want to exploit students, but want to do different kinds of research, say with smaller samples. Mm -hmm. Some of the research that I really enjoy doing myself is with people who run organizations that are creating communication campaigns for social change. I like interviewing people who are doing this work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very small sample. And usually I'm interviewing people who are excited about what they're doing and happy to talk. And that's an entirely different kind of research. But I need to be in an environment that supports that kind of small purpose of sampling and isn't expecting me to do that kind of narrow research. Sure. But there is an exploitation, absolutely. Could we move away from, from sure. this book? Yes. Um, in the second half of our chat to talk about some of the other research that you're doing and have done. And in particular, this work with small groups that want to be involved in the research endeavor. Well, I've done two other, two other strands of my research. One has to do with U.S media representations of the Middle East, and then the other area I do a lot of work in is development. Right. And I enjoy talking to people about the, what they think they're doing with communication, and how they intend to use it, and what they think it actually does. I'm also very interested in the broader landscape of communication in development, and this is a field that historically has been very media effects driven in a very narrow and limited way. Can you explain that, that sure. media effects to some listeners? Sure, so some research will just say, here's a communication campaign. And I did some of this work in the 1980s with the US Agency for International Development, where we would do things like, a project I worked on was to go into Jordan and to tell women that they should breastfeed their children longer rather than a shorter period of time. And it was related to things like how long uh, is an appropriate period of time between having children. And so the World Health Organization decided it should be two years. Jordan had a very short birth interval. So the US Agency for International Development decided to go in to Jordan and many countries and tell people to breastfeed longer. Now there's a benefit to that. There are clear health benefits and it's important to work against Nestle's and other corporations that are promoting infant formula. And that research is media effects driven in that it says here is a communications campaign, here is a TV ad, and the TV ad says you're a, you're a woman, you're a mother, breastfeed your child and get your child vaccinated. And then the research looks at what people do and it looks at surveys before and after and sees if people change their minds and do things more frequently. Was the campaign effective? Exactly. Was the campaign effective? Right. right. And I've done a lot of that kind of research but I became frustrated with it because I was more interested in 
why is this the issue? And the people I worked with in Georgia. Because women is, won't control their sexuality on their own. That's right. <laughs> but what was interesting about the, um, the work that I did at the time was I was working with the Queen Noor Foundation. This is the late 80s. And they said their biggest problem was people not wearing seatbelts in cars and people shooting guns in celebration weddings. They wanted people to stop that. But they couldn't get funding for that. Those were not sexy topics. So I am very interested in the way donors with a great deal of money dictate which problems get more attention and how they think we should be doing things. So I began to be very interested in the power dynamics and the political economy of the development industry. And one of the things that really fascinates me right now and I'm concerned about is the growing contributions of private donors who've made their money from global communication industries. So the Gates Foundation, Warren Buffett contributing to Gates, the Dell Foundation, Oprah Winfrey, Bono. All of these groups are putting money into development and global development aid and attempting to change the way we do this work. And one of the things that's problematic is that the corporations that have sidearms of philanthropies are developing putting money into the countries where they want to produce their products and sell their products. So the Dell Foundation, for example, puts a lot of money into India where they have factories and they want to sell more. They're also putting a lot of attention into the idea that if you don't like the idea of global poverty as if it's some big abstract thing, you should click a button on Facebook, you should buy a product in the color red, and through your consumption, don't critique capitalism, don't ask your government to tax, increase taxes, but just buy products in a particular color and then therefore you have contributed and changed the world. I remember many years ago my first encounter with this was at a zoo, not institutions that I patronize anymore, where at the end of the time in the zoo, at the exit point, there was an illuminated map of the world you could click on the animal that you'd found the cutest in the zoo, articulate it to a part of the world where such species lived, and then drop money into a slot mm -hmm. that would be guaranteed to go into the welfare of such animals in such parts of the world. Absolutely wonderful. It was a beauty contest amongst gorillas, fundamentally. Yeah. And of course this also articulates to the notion that development has failed and that what has to happen in its place, in particular in place of aid, is a business philanthropy. Exactly. Right? So the business model is imposed. Because it's of course such a great fucking success. Well, and it's obviously not. In one of the most popular books, more recently, The Critiquing Development by William Easterly, The White Man's Burden, has some a few good points in that aid isn't working, but a lot of bad points in that he's imposing a business model on that. So some of my work has to do with issues of gender in development. And when you look at the way women are presented, basically, we breed and feed, we buy and cry. <laughs> so by breeding and feeding, it means most of the money goes to population and nutrition programs, as if women are meant to represent not only the nation and the family, but everything else, but who they are themselves. We also, as women, are categorized as people who are going to buy things and people who need to be commodified in order to sell things. 
and our most visible presence is as victim. Now, this makes perfect sense to me. It is interesting when articulated to numbers. One thinks of Amartya Sen and many others wanting to see a strong emphasis on literacy for women mm -hmm. as a means of diminishing birth rates, understood as something that women would like if they had the knowledge so to do. Mm -hmm. It articulates to understandings about the people who make consumer capitalism work in the sense of buying things, who are understood statistically in many cases as being female in post-industrial societies. And women now in the United States are more likely to decide the purchase of big items like cars and houses, though not yachts, than men are by small majorities, and much more likely to determine purchases in all kinds of other consumer sectors. So, how does, getting back to the number thing, how do you engage with the sexism and misogyny that resonate through what you just described with what I just said? Hmm. Or the claim, for example, that yeah. one reason for the Chinese economic growth over the last few years has been the restriction on fertility because of what it's done in terms of wealth creation and distribution. For me, what matters is not saying women shouldn't get attention in terms of funding, but have attention in more comprehensive ways and have more control over the kind of attention. And the numbers argument to me that becomes most critical is who is creating the number for what purpose. And if I can use numbers to show discrimination, whether it's an issue of gender or any other power differential, then I think it's worthwhile. But more often than not, the people who are creating the numbers have different agendas than the people who are most vulnerable. So for example, if you look at a lot of gender differences in salaries, if you look at them across the board, they may seem like they're different pay scales, but they're not that different. But when you differentiate it across grades and different levels, you can see different patterns that matter more. And some people will have more interest in making them different. In terms of the fertility issue, um, one thing I'll say is that I've done a lot of, I've looked at a lot of population programs that have been attempting to get women to use contraception rather than understanding issues of sexuality, issues of decision-making as not just an individual action, right. but as a consensual action, a relationship issue, um, and always, often not a matter of choice for some women who are forced into sexual behaviors. So a lot of that research misses some really important power dynamics. Just no interest in sexuality and women's autonomy, basically. Right. It's looking at an aggregated notion of the greater public good understood in terms of fertility rates, but not prepared to do so via the pathway or acknowledging that this might be a legitimate telos, namely women's sexuality. Yeah. 
there's a great interest in controlling women's sexuality rather than trying to allow women to make those decisions. Yeah, sure, sure. Now, I wondered if we could turn now to a field in which you've done a lot of work and you've already mentioned it, namely the Arab world slash the Middle East. Tell us what's been going on there for you. You've already mentioned briefly questions of the representation of that part of the world in the US bourgeois media. One of the things I've recently done is to take a look at a lot of the different kinds of research that I've done and seeing how similar the findings were. So I've analyzed U.S. development approaches to the Middle East. I've looked at news representations of Palestinian issues and Middle Eastern issues. And I've looked at action-adventure film. And one of the things I find most interesting looking across all of those different kinds of research is how similar the narrative is. The story becomes The story one. is the same. We have, and again, that Hollywood narrative. Whether you're talking about action-adventure film or the way we portray global events and U.S. involvement in the Middle East, we have yeah. the white male American hero vanquishing the dark male villain to rescue the masses of women and children. And that's the same narrative we have in our discussion of how the U.S. saves Afghanistan and Iraq. It's the same discussion of the U.S. role in any of these other countries. The only thing that's potentially changing overall is that now that we have a new demographic, and you said you're interested in demographics. Since I love the D word. <laughs> Young people who wear jeans and use Facebook and speak in English. It resonates with Americans in a way that makes them very happy. So this is, in a sense, partly the new hero because it resonates so clearly with the American hero that we see in our own films. Christina Rigert was on the podcast recently talking about studies that she and other Nordic types, I mean you're a Nordic type as well, have been doing on Arab street bloggers and how the New York Times basically takes as unproblematically true anything that a good-looking young English-speaking person says exactly. <laughs> online who's <laughs> from the region mm -hmm. <laughs> quite remarkable well that, that's my crass and crude version distilling her research and I still think that the, all of the visuals of the statue of uh, Saddam Hussein you know, falling that was manufactured to fit the global Hollywood narrative yes, of no we needed a villain to go down Yeah. and we needed the visuals for it right, right, right no, it's the other side to the gigantism and monumentalism of fascist or Soviet statuary, which of course goes back a lot further. And certainly what you're describing relates to imperialist adventures really from the 19th century on. I mean, the justifications for the Portuguese, the Belgians, the French, the British, the Germans, again and again, are about rescuing women from the countries that yes. they elect to invade. I mean. Poor old Afghanistan has had that done to it in the name of femininity for centuries now, actually. Uh, it's a constant justification, isn't it? But always perfidious Albion. So, okay, you've found, as you've reviewed your own research and that of others, a remarkable constancy. Yes, across the narratives, whether it's popular culture, whether it's so-called news, 
whether it's our descriptions of our foreign aid programs, the story is the same. The story is one in which others are not able to solve their own problems, and because women need help because of their awful men, the, the white man needs to go in and save them. So true, really, I find. So, one of the things about your work is that whilst you publish in, in a sense, conventional places academically, this book mm -hmm. is with Oxford University Press, uh, the questioning numbers one, you also do work with agencies and other operatives in the field, as it were. You try to reach out and get support from entities that are not just academic. No? What has been the response of some of those entities to this kind of research that you've done? I do try to work with a lot of groups in the nonprofit world in the development yeah. landscape. And the people I speak with are very interested in critical research. They work very hard. They don't have the time or the luxury to do it themselves, but they are very open to it and are very interested in having conversations with people about this kind of work. So I've, the people I've met have been very receptive. I've also found that when I've published articles with development agencies and nonprofit groups online, I get way more response than any of the academic pieces that I ever do. So I find it really gratifying to be able to have conversations with people about some of these issues and that I don't have a chance to do otherwise. That's interesting. I've got a couple of questions arising out of that, but one of them is, are you getting bored with academic publishing then in its conventions or ticked off with it? A little bit, yes. Um, Though there are groups that do allow you to be more creative. Nordicom um, allowed me to edit a, a group of essays that's about to come out, and it's who benefits from development and who gets harmed. It's about the implicit agendas. So there are sometimes groups that do allow us to do more creative things. It is a little frustrating when one tries to cross boundaries and you get the, the conventional response that you talked about earlier from a, somebody who only does qualitative or only does quantitative, that can be very frustrating. Mm. And I also do get frustrated, honestly, when I feel like the issues that I'm trying to talk about matter, and I'm writing for such a small group, and a very elite group at that. It makes me frustrated because I want to do more. Yeah, sure. And then. Related to that, what about the response of development agencies of USAID, for instance, the United, the wing of the United States government that is in charge of international development, at least nominally, or the World Bank or regional development banks and so on? What happens there in terms of the, uh, research into things like stereotypes or research into problematizing the gendered norms of much of this very policy-oriented research that is seeking to regulate women? The different agencies respond in very different ways and I'll say that when I interview people individually they're very excited about issues and very interested in talking. However, 
The structure that they work within is way bigger than they are. The people change frequently and there's an agenda that they have to work within. So, for example, I interviewed people in Japan and their international cooperation agency and they had to hire what they called as two gender experts. Right before the, um, what was the that? Oh, little butterfly, butterfly just landed just right on you. Landed on my knuckle but took off in search of duck or dog. So Something. So I loved interviewing the people in the Japanese agency because there were two women who were hired to be the so-called gender experts, but they didn't put any money behind it. And they gave them no power whatsoever. So the organization was told they must take this seriously, but they didn't have any ability to do so. Um, the Danish organization, people that I've worked with and talked to, are much more interested in more of the structural issues and trying to give women the ability to vote, to inherit property, so they're interested in policy change. The, the U.S. Agency for International Development has such an odd history with women and gender issues. In the 70s, when it was the UN decade for the women, they decided to create an office devoted to women. They had a little bit of money, not a lot, no authority. Then they changed their name to gender. But one of the problems with the development field is that little words become big and then they become co-opted. So all of the original interest in whatever the term is loses its meaning over time. It's a very trendy field. And so when one issue becomes popular, then everybody wants to put its funding within that rubric without any attention to what it really means. And then gradually over time, it, it doesn't even matter. So for example, participation. Big issue in the 70s, meant to be a critique against hierarchical top-down strategic planning without talking to people about what they wanted. Started as a really nice set of ideals, completely co-opted. It has no meaning anymore. Now participation means have a focus group. <laughs> it's lost its meaning. And I'll tell you, one of my former students in development went to work for the World Bank and he thought he was going to make the World Bank participatory. And I said, there's no way, because the structure is going to be bigger than you are. And he tried for five years. I, I hated watching him and being right, but I was right. They couldn't, of course they weren't going to become participatory. That's not how they work. So no matter how idealistic a particular individual might be, the way they're organized, the goal, the mission of the institution, means that they have an institutional agenda for survival and domination and control. They're not going to change. So women and gender issues, they were trendy. They're no longer trendy. The big word right now is poverty. But nobody really understands why people are poor if they're saying the way to solve poverty is just to buy something in a particular color. <laughs> that, I guess, leads us onto a, a, the topic of the idea of ethical consumption, which seems to be quite important here. The perhaps rather unfair stereotype that I was helping to conjure up with my account of the zoo and my own participation mm. in this whenever it was, 25 years ago. And that is to say, click on this, clickocracy, click capitalism, mm. feel good, feel better, because you've invested in the right way for labor to be exploited the right way for minerals to be extracted, the right way for merchandising to manipulate 
customers, the right way for doing this and doing that, as opposed to the wrong one. Obviously, at a fundamental level, that reinscribes plutocracy because it means that people with money have power. But is it entirely pointless? Is it completely useless for people to buy fair trade coffee, for example? What's your take? I'm not going to say it's completely useless, <laughs> but I do think that it's the way it's being sold and the way people understand it is problematic. There are better ways to distribu distribute resources. So for me, what I find so problematic is no attention to the idea of you get to buy this product. What gives you all of these extra resources to be able to buy the product in order so that 10% of that profit can go to somebody else to buy medicine to keep from dying? And that's the way it's structured. Yeah. So it's the attention that one mode of helping gets rather than seeing the problem of distribution of resources in the first place. Now I will say that there are some things that we all can do by different kinds of light bulbs, by different, there are choices that we can make that matter, but it's the structure of choices that I find that we don't give enough attention to. Yes, why do I know the name of Bono and Geldof in all of this, but I don't know the name of the people that they're speaking on behalf of with their miraculous capacity to cut through bullshit and understand things in a way that the suits don't. Right. So, Well, I have one final question for you, but I want to leave time obviously for you to add anything you wish, Karen, which is what happens next? I know that you're uh, stepping down tomorrow virtually, right, from a major administrative post you've been holding here in Texas at the University of Texas at Austin. What do you think is going to be the next project after questioning numbers? Do you already know, perhaps? I have several projects I'm very excited several. about. Sorry. Yes, yes, yes. Fire away. But I'm studying, stepping down from media studies, but I'm still associate director of Middle Eastern studies. And I run a program here I'm very excited about, which is our Bridging Disciplines Global Studies program at the university. Bridging Disciplines Global Studies. Yes. So this allows students across colleges to have a certificate and pay attention to the idea that global issues matter. So students who are in veterinary science or Doesn't physics yeah. could do this? Yeah. Okay. It's a oh, wonderful okay. program because it's truly interdisciplinary. And I'm very excited about that. In terms of research projects, the development communication field has been so problematic for so long that a few years ago, several of us, and I'm going to have to include myself here, thought that we could improve the field by calling it social change rather than development, because development is often critiqued as being too much about what large institutions want. Then I began to be critical of the idea of social change because it was still too innocuous. There's no politics to it. It's, very, it's a very easy way of talking about very difficult issues. So one of the things I'm writing about more is advocacy communication against global capitalism. And it brings in social movements, but it also brings in other kinds of organized protests as well. So I'm working on that. I'm also working on the privatization of development and what that means to what I would call women servicing development in a variety of ways. And 
I've got a research project with a number of graduate students looking at the way not only American-based media but also different Arab language press have covered the Egyptian politics. So I'm very interested, and I don't know the answer to this, I'm interested in seeing whether the U.S.-based privileging of technology as the motivator for social change, whether that is heard at all in other, other accounts. Could you briefly take us through each of those three projects in a bit sure. more detail? Because we've got just enough time to do that. It'd be lovely to learn a wee bit more. Well, the privatization of development is um, based on a lot of the things that we've already been talking about. I want to see what happens when private donors become involved in funding. I have a sense in terms of how things get funded, but I want to know more about the from the people who actually work in the organizations. Mm -hmm. So for example, when the Bono Group Join Red gets involved in the Global Fund, it's a huge funding structure with many different donors. 95% um, of the funding comes from the bilateral agencies or the governments. 5% comes from private donations and most of that is from the Gates Foundation. But because Bono is Bono, he picks the countries and he picks the topics, which no other donor does. So this is a fund that's supposed to be also devoted to malaria and tuberculosis, which are huge global health issues. The money goes towards AIDS. And it's not to say that HIV is not a problem. It is, it's a concern, but so are many other things. And so that nature of politics and control is something that I'm very interested in looking at with that. Um, the other issues are still more questions that I have at this time. Sure. Questions that I'm really interested in. I've done a lot of work on how women become articulated in development, why women matter, and I have a sense of how it's mattered in the past. What I'm wondering about is if when private donors become involved, does it further accentuate the idea that women are commodified in order to sell things? And that becomes more open-ended because it's not just women as victims, but women in terms of selling the marketing of the, pro the color red in the products. Sure, absolutely. In some of the um, Living Proof campaign. Living Proof, I don't know what that is, I must proof, admit. Living um, Proof, it's a very interesting campaign run by Bono's other group called One. Oh yeah. O-N-E, One. And it's funded by the Gates Foundation. And it's, an ad it's supposed to be what they call advocacy. It's not what I call advocacy. But they call it advocacy because they claim they're trying to raise, number one, raise global awareness that there's poverty. <laughs> number two, they're saying that we should encourage our governments to give a higher percentage of funding to foreign aid. And then they want you to buy things that they can use the money for. So the, the Living Proof campaign is kind of fun too because there's also, if you search it on Google, it's also a hair care product, and it's also a Monsanto campaign. <laughs> so a lot of interesting, odd connotations to it. The whole Living Proof campaign is really Bill and Melinda Gates and Bono's attempt to tell people in Britain and the United States that development works. They're very excited. So they frame it in terms of well, all we ever hear about is crises in Africa. So we're here to tell you that people in Africa actually are doing really well. So they tell these stories, and they have these videos on a website. And you go to it, and you'll, you'll hear, like, there's one woman who's saying, I was so poor, 
my husband hit me. I could have contracted HIV, but I have decided to be, empower myself. I have my own hairdressing salon now, and I, I picked myself up and I made it. Damn it. And if I can do it, anybody can. And I'm not a welfare mom. Exactly. She's, she's saying, I, I was offered government assistance, I refused. Sure, of course you did. And so the Living Proof campaign is the living proof that some people actually succeeded. So it's meant to show us that people can do well without all of these things. There's a paradox there. Sure, absolutely. And, you know, the, needless to say, things like roads and telecommunications and electricity are just things that you conjure up through the sheer force of will. <laughs> it's a lot of fun to look at. But it's also very it's sad. Very gruesome. It's, it's very sad. And I, I do feel like the people who are being taped are being exploited. I don't believe they're getting paid for what they're doing. And it becomes part of this very wealthy website that is raising money that they then control. And lastly, the collaborative project with a number of your students yes. that you mentioned. Yes. Um, so I have been very interested in U.S. media constructions of the way people organize and protest and how media and communications technologies become part of that. But in response to my interest that the U.S. media has been overemphasizing the role of Facebook, I was very curious about whether media in Egypt and some of the transnational media have been portraying these events in similar ways. Equally gullible and technologically deterministic. And it, what's important here though is that a lot of the local media are really clearly aligned either with the government or a particular political party. The transnational media in the Arab region are more likely to not be associated with one particular government. So that's, that's part of this as well. And I'm really interested in the growth of the transnational satellite television, the transnational news collection, and how that's potentially contributing to what people know. You know, anecdotally, we hear that the transnational television is opening up space for controversy and conversation about things people were talking about anyway, but not in that kind of public venue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow, well, that's very exciting. Karen, when any one of these three projects bears fruit, I hope you'll come back to the pod and share with us some of your work and findings. Is that possible, do you think? Absolutely. Fantastic. Cheers. <laughs>